Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Revelations 2 and 3, uh, just kind of hitting the tops of the trees. It's been about four or five years ago. We spent seven weeks on Revelations 2 and 3, and so I didn't see uh, necessary necessarily to go through that to that degree again this time. So we're going to try to hit Revelations 2 and 3 tonight and just hit the tops of the trees. I'm, it's going to take a lot of discipline on my part just to do that. Amen. As an overview, uh, just for us to kind of get a little bit of our bearings. With that being said, I'd like to read uh, verses 1 through 7, which pertains to the first church. And uh, since, I, since I know you all read Revelations 2 and 3 since last Wednesday, because I asked you to, uh, I'm not going to read every single episode of the church just to expedite time just a little bit because that, that's several, several verses uh, in order to do that, all right? And, and so I'll just read the first segment and we'll hit here and there along the way here, journey, all right? Starting with Revelations 2, chapter number 1, or verse number 1, rather, the Bible says, And to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. This should sound familiar to us. It's already been mentioned of before. Who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not. And hast found them liars. And hast borne and hast patience. And for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Again, we're going to be hitting the tops of the trees tonight. So if there's something in here through two and three, you say, well, he didn't say anything about that. It's because I'm trying to just hit the tops of the trees. You want something a little bit more in depth? Order the old, the letters to the seven churches from about four or five years ago. However, my subject matter for tonight is letters to the seven churches, but it's in a condensed version. All right, and we'll try to get through this. Bishop, will you pray over us this evening? Amen. Amen. Everyone say amen. Amen. You may be uh, seated this evening. I believe I stated it last week that the letters that are written to each individual church was written, the Bible says it always makes mention to the angel of the church, which could be translated messenger, the messenger of the church, or it may uh, be a literal angelic messenger, or it could be a human messenger, uh, the word that is used there, such as a pastor that we know uh, today. But as each church is dealt with, the Lord approaches the church and he approaches it with characteristics of himself. He comes to them as in this particular one of Ephesus as the one that holds the seven stars in his right hand. 
and that is in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So he always approaches uh, the angel of the church or the church with some characteristics of himself. And it's as we look into that particular church that the way that he approaches them is in a way that may benefit them the most in their present circumstances of what they are contending with, what they are standing for or not standing uh, for. And most of the attributes that he comes to the churches in, as we look at each one, uh, you can find those in the first chapter of Revelation whenever it gave all those different attributes of Jesus Christ in the first chapter. Now, not every church, not every church in these seven letters uh, are, are commended. Not all of them are commended. Not all of them get uh, the thumb up. Also, though, not every one of the churches, not all of these seven. And let me say, it says seven churches. There were more than seven churches at that time. All right, but these were just those that he chose to write letters to uh, that no doubt got somewhat of a, a, a uh, spectrum of what the church overall of every age may contend with or deal with or may be like. Uh, as someone asked me last week concerning does this represent seven different denominations? No, no, it doesn't represent seven different denominations or anything of that measure, just seven churches. One thing I realized whenever throughout Scripture we've looked at this, Bishop has taught about it, the number seven many times in Scripture speaks of fullness or completeness, so on and so forth. So uh, the completeness of the church is just the whole ball of wax concerning the church and what a church may deal with and contend with. So while every church wasn't necessarily given the thumbs up or commended, every church likewise, though, was not rebuked. There were some churches that got away from the Lord speaking to them without being rebuked, but there were others that were very greatly rebuked but there's one thing that all the churches received from Christ that he always opened up this uh, opened with this to the churches he said I know thy works that is something that is a common thread for all seven he told them I know your works and so we're talking about the eyes of the Lord that run to and fro over all the earth uh, if anybody's going to know he's going to know uh, not just the works of the church but the individual works of our life and at the end at the closure of each letter he gives a reassurance to the church, no matter how bad they uh, may seem at that particular point of time. He tells them that, that everyone that overcometh, there is a blessing or there is a reward to him that overcomes. So he gives that ray of hope unto them. And in doing so, he brings the message that's to a church or to a group of churches and he brings it down on an individual level. Amen. And challenges us on an individual level to overcome. Because by and large, what? A church is no greater than the people that it consists of. And so it comes down on an individual member level. Because whenever he talks about, uh, he doesn't say you all that overcome. He says he and him that overcomes. It comes down to an individual level. And so every church even makes mention a phrase that we've heard a lot uh, through the ages. He says, he that hath an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, plural. Uh, and he says at the end of each of these letters, he doesn't just say to the church. So these letters, the one that was written to Ephesus just wasn't for Ephesus. It was for Ephesus and Sardis and Smyrna and Thyatira. It was for all the churches. Uh, not just those seven, but every church of that age and even our age. It's to each and every one of us. It's for every church of every age. Amen. And again, he brings that down on an individual uh, individual level because we individually are responsible. I know uh, we are part of a, a church. We call this a church, all right? Uh, we are part of a church, a group of people, and there's groups of people all over 
the United States that make up the church, and we're all a part of that, amen, but individually we are responsible. In that, that if you're a part of assembly that starts to, as some of these churches did, go awry, uh, you can't just can't deliver on the fact, well, they did wrong, so we just followed suit. No, you are individually responsible for the truth that has been conveyed to you in your life to uphold that, amen, even in spite of what the majority, quote-unquote, uh, may be doing, amen. And in the seven churches there is, there is a spectrum of attitudes and actions of the church throughout the ages, amen, and even in our present time. Uh, and that's, that, that spectrum, starting with Ephesus and ending with Laodicea, uh, kind of shows us basically what the church has been through to a certain degree. Uh, it tells us of its beginning. It tells us of its end. If I may, if I may, if it does do that, illustrate those attitudes and illustrate its beginning and its end from Ephesus to Laodicea. A lot of people talk about we're living in the Laodicean church age. You heard uh, that terminology. Bishop M.L. Walls, and I've been so blessed by Brother Walls' commentary on Revelation. He has been flat preaching in it, and I felt the Holy Ghost in a tremendous way. And I, uh, my phone was about dead the other night, so I didn't uh, make any contact with him because I want to let him know he's just preaching. He is, folks. I'm telling you, he is preaching and stuff that we're not even going to talk about, but boy, he was really just getting after it. And I was totally blessed by him. But Bishop Wall said this. He said something that's, if you look at the whole spectrum of the churches, Ephesus, Toledo, Sia, and look at the beginning and look the end. He says to the church at Ephesus, he said the Lord is appearing unto them as the one that's walking in the midst of the churches at Ephesus. He says, but when we get to the last church of Laodicea, he's found on the outside knocking for the admittance into the church. He says it begins with him among them, and then in the end he's on the outside knocking to see if he can get in. Just to give an idea of how the church, in certain respects, if we don't watch ourselves, uh, the beginning fervor that we begin with uh, of him being among us, we can exclude him to the exterior where he's wanting to get in, but we're not opening the door. And so the church at Ephesus is what I have deemed even four years ago, and I'm going to stay with that in case anybody picks those up. It is the church that which left its first love. Ephesus' name means, and, and this seems a little bit uh, peculiar, but not whenever we consider the path that Ephesus took. Its name means desirable, but it also means to let go and relax, which seems a little peculiar that it would have both of this double meaning, but... In fact, that was the life of Ephesus. It was desirable in the sense of its start. In its beginning, it was very desirable. We read the church of Ephesus throughout the book of Acts. We read in Acts 19 of the apostle meeting with some of those of the Ephesians and, and uh, he asked them have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe you remember those scripts that we didn't know there was such a Holy Ghost there's a lot spoken of Ephesus in the book of Acts and even in the epistles the book of Ephesians is written to the church of Ephesus and so Paul has a lot of interaction with the church at Ephesus as a matter of fact he spent uh, he spent more time at Ephesus than he had spent anywhere else at Corinth or Rome, anywhere else. He spent most of his time, no less than three years, at Ephesus. Uh, his protege, Timothy, uh, became the church, the pastor, if you will, of the church at Ephesus. Ephesus through the book of Acts. And again, this is just an overview. But we read even in Ephesians 
that they are known for their famed temple, Diana. Remember the man Demetrius who made idols basically for the temple of Diana and little trinkets and such. He was upset when they come preaching the truth because their sales kind of dropped off and, and uh, they were kind of upset about that. But there was a great revelation, revelation and revival that took place in Ephesus. The Bible accounts in Ephesians and in Acts speaking about how whenever they brought their books and it seemed to be books of witchcraft and sorcery that they had once practiced and they burned these and it was valued at a great great price of the books that they have brought and burned so whenever you talk about the beginning of the church of Ephesus man that is a church to pattern after they are on fire they're adamant about the truth of God and want to internalize that in their life uh, reading in, in, in Revelation he, he commends them he said you guys you guys can't, couldn't bear evil you couldn't stand evil uh, you, you would not wink your eye or nod your head at evil you were adamant about not allowing it in your life he said there were those that were speaking uh, that they were apostles but they were not they were liars he said you were quick to expose hypocrites in, in essence he said you were quick to do that he said you hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans and we'll talk a little bit more about that later but the Nicolaitans we're, we're left with a little sketchy history of them uh, there's not a real identity that is given to them of their teachings or what's totally uh, been passed on through history it's not preserved really what all that was their deeds or their doctrine uh, to a grand degree but he said evidently the Lord hated it and he said you all hated it so that, that was something to be looked up to and so man in the beginning great desirable everybody said desirable desirable but then comes about 40 years removed from that time frame their second meaning to let go to relax 40 years later now this letter that's written in the book of Revelation by the pen of John into the church of Ephesus comes and the latter end of Ephesus gives us that definition then to let go and relax Christ told them he said you left your first love Tell you what, I'm listening, Lord. Hallelujah. You left your first love. Amen. And so look how Christ approaches this church as he comes to them. He approaches them as the one that has the seven stars and the stars are the messengers. We read in Revelation 1 in his right hand and he comes to them as being the one that is among the churches. That's how Christ approaches the Ephesian church. I'm the one that has the seven stars in my hand and I'm among the seven candlesticks. I'm among the churches. But he's telling Ephesus, he says, Ephesus, you have left your first love. He says, I'm among the churches. I got the messengers in my hands, but you're wanting to leave that environment. You're wanting to leave where my presence is. And I denote this many years ago, and I will many other times before I die to this assembly, but because it's largely misquoted here in the book of Revelation that they lost their first love. Ephesus didn't lose their first love. They left their first love. And there is a big difference between losing something and leaving something. You can lose something by accident, but leaving is a deliberate act. Amen. Although it may not happen suddenly, it is a deliberate act. And whenever I lose something by and large, I don't know where to find it. But whenever I leave something, I know where I left it and I can get back to it if I just go back to where I dropped it off. So there's a big difference between leaving and losing. The Ephesian church left 
their first love. They knew where God was. He was among the churches and he had the messengers in his hand. It was not an accident. It was a deliberate act on their part. They were desirable, but now they relaxed. Amen. And they let go. And one of the consequences for not correcting this action is that Christ said, he said, I will remove your candlestick out of its place. He's walking among the churches when he approaches them and evidently even Revelation 1, their candlestick was where the presence of Christ was. But Christ says, if you don't make amends, if you do not correct this, I'm not leaving. No, he's not, I'm not leaving. He says, I'm going to remove the candlestick. The candlestick was what was supported the light, what bore the light, what held the light from its place. And its place, its place is to be in the presence of the Lord. But if you don't make amends, you're going to lose your spot of being in the presence of the Lord. The light isn't going anywhere. I'm going to remain right where I'm at. The light's not going anywhere. But there is a lesson then learned in all this. He said, you left your first love. And when we leave our first love, we lose our capacity to bear the light. When we lose our first love, we lose our real capacity to evangelize and be a witness and let the light so shine before men. Significantly, the church which had lost its first love, notice now, is given this particular promise. That is the promise to those that overcome, the promise to those that make these things right. He says to those that overcome, to him that overcomes, he says, I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He says to, you, to those of you that make amends for this, he said, I'll give you access to the tree of life. Now, this, this, is, this is important, I think, to me because whenever you mention tree of life, my mind races all the way back to the book of beginnings in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life. And when they had access to the tree of life, they had access and fellowship with God. And it's when they transgress that they were set outside of the garden, away from the tree of life, and cherubim's there to guard it, so they enter not back in. And in doing so, they also lost what? Fellowship with God. And he says, to you who overcome and retrieve your first love, go back to wherever you dropped it off and resecure it, you have fellowship with me, but when you get fellowship with me, you get fellowship back with the tree of life. That was the very essence which the Ephesians had left, their relationship with God, their relationship with him. And so throughout the eons of time, from the beginning of the church until now, there have been different periods and different episodes in time, and even with individual churches, that we have left our first love. Going on, and I'm not reading because for the sake of time, but because you've read this already, Revelation chapter number 2, verses 8 through 11, speak of the next church, the letter that's written to the angel of the next church by the name of Smyrna. I call Smyrna the faithful church. Amen. The word Smyrna, this city Smyrna, actually comes from the word myrrh. Myrrh. All right? Myrrh. Myrrh was used in embalming people. It was a component used in embalming people. Myrrh was. But myrrh only gave forth its fragrance whenever it was crushed, whenever it was beaten. That's where it became fragrant. And Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. Smyrna 
was the church that had experienced a lot of persecution. A lot of persecution. And uh, I believe the name then of this city represents this church very well. You'll note that with this church and only one other, there is no rebuking of the church of Smyrna. There is no rebuking at them. They had suffered much persecution. And isn't it interesting? There's no rebuke to those that suffered a lot of persecution. And the only thing I think of, persecution has a way of drawing us or pushing us a little closer to God. I know people don't always react like that, but there's a bunch of people when they're going through something, if God was on the shelf, he's not on it right now. If he's their proverbial crutch, then they're going to be using him right now. And so persecution, and many times in our trouble, we draw nigh to God. Notice, God did not have one word of rebuke to them because they were a church that suffered a lot of persecution. Evidently, they took full advantage of God. Their prayer was probably spot on because they were going through some junk and they knew they needed a savior and they knew they needed the master. No rebuke to them, amen, because they're going through persecution and evidently they were in good relationship with God. Now, whereas the church prior to this, Ephesus needed to return to a former condition, this one Christ is speaking to, he's not telling them to return to a former condition, he's just telling them to persevere. Just keep doing what you are doing right now. Just keep on keeping on. And I love, I love this. In, in, in verse number nine, there's a little parenthetical phrase here in this letter. Christ is telling them, I, lo I love these little, because little parenthetical phrases is kind of a oh yeah moment. And as he's talking to them, he says, I know your works. I know your tribulations. And that's not talking about the great tribulation, all right. I know your testings. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. Parenthetical phrase, by the way, but thou art rich. He says, in this world, you may be impoverished. He said, but let me whisper in your ear, you, your ear, you are very rich. They might have been poor in the things of the world, but they were rich in the things of God. To see the difference then in Laodicea who were rich in the things of the world but they were poor in the things of God. I tell you right now, I'd be right now, I'd rather be poor any day in this world and rich in God than poor in God and rich in the world. This is the faithful church through a lot of persecution, suffered a lot for the gospel's sake, for truth's sake. Some even had lost their lives because of persecution. Some had been pressed near death's door. Whenever they, at this time, they would sometimes have to just do a little pinch of incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is the Lord. They refused to do that. And whenever they did, many times they were put on the old stretch tables. And every time they refused, they were stretched just a little further, a little further, till bone came from bone. Many of them met their death right there. Amen. But it was all for the sake of the gospel. Now notice, whenever Christ approaches them in this letter, he comes to them as he which was dead and is alive. Just as a measure of comfort to this church that feel like they're being ground to a powder, beaten unmercifully, some of them even losing their lives. Christ says, I'm coming to, you to, coming to you as one that was dead, but I am now alive. Don't you know that brought some comfort and brought some hope to those people that were oppressed for doing well because they knew we might die in this life but if we died with Christ and for Christ, we shall also live just as he lives. Amen. 
Whenever Christ told the Ephesians about straightening up the way, he basically told them, here's what I'm going to do to you if you do not straighten up. But to Smyrna, the idea is this. Here's what I'm going to do for you if you just keep on keeping on. I'll give you a crown of life, he says, if you'll be faithful unto death. Now, the Greeks called Smyrna the crown of Asia Minor because of its beauty as a city. And they had a custom every year. There were city administrators and rulers and priests that would receive a crown of leaves, like laurels or leaves, for their head because of their faithfulness to their duties among the community. The Smyrnian people could identify then with what took place in their own city and the Lord speaking to them on a level they could understand. I know in the natural you have officials and leaders that get these wreaths for their faithfulness to their duties in the city. He says, but I'll give you a crown. I'll give you a crown of life if you remain faithful unto me unto the death. Amen. Amen. So what are you saying, Christ? He's saying don't be clamoring for the worldly achievements. Don't be clamoring for a crown that is going to perish. I will give you a crown of life even in the middle of your death. I'll give you a crown of life. And he states, he that overcomes, he said, will not be hurt by the second death. See, the first death that we experience separates our body from our soul. But if you go to experience the second death, that separates you eternally from God. That submits you to eternal punishment. He says, but if you're faithful to me, you'll only have to experience the first death, which is just a separation of body. And so you will not have to worry about the second death. It will not hurt you. So I'd rather endure some temporal testing, temporal persecution right now to ensure some safety from eternal punishment then. Revelation chapter number 2, verse number 12 through 17, the third church, the church called Pergamos. Pergamos is the compromising church. The compromising church. As a matter of fact, the word gamos in Pergamos means married. The word per means by, through, or throughout, or if you will, through marriage or throughout marriage, the word Pergamos. Because Pergamos, the compromising church, married herself to something. And we could go, I would, I'd really like to go down a, a rabbit trail right about now, but I can't because I'm in an overview. But we'll do that maybe some other day. But while the previous church, Smyrna, had the persecution and the pressure that was from without, the church of Pergamos was dealing with a pressure that was within. Smyrna had the enemy without. Pergamos had an enemy within. And there is something evident here that is true for every church of every age. There are those, according here to Pergamos, that you can read down through here. The Lord gives some commending and he also gives some rebuke. And we see that in many of these churches and it's true for every church. But there are those among the church, like this one, Pergamos. He said, you held fast to my name. And he said, you did not deny my faith. But then later on, he says, there's people that's making some allowances for carnal things. Smack dab in one church was people that was holding true blue and another was a kind of laxy-loosey. And that, I think, is a, a typical of every church. That is the dynamics, the chemistry of a church. One reason why that should be the case is because we should have people at varying levels within the church. Amen. 
And so that, that, that should be a part of it to a certain degree. Now, if you're a part of the church for several years and you just can't get it to fly right or go straight, now that's a whole different story. That's another, that's another problem we have on our hands. But compromise happens right here. And it's so fitting then, this is the church of compromise, that the Lord would approach them with characteristics and attributes then as the one that's holding a sharp sword with two edges he's coming to this church as. Now remember... We read in Scripture that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Amen? Let me state this. There is no better tool against compromise than the Word of God. Mm-hmm. There is no better tool. Okay. That's the reason, one reason why I believe Paul told Timothy, he said, preach the Word. Be instant in season. Preach the Word. Paul told Timothy one time, he said, I fought with the beast of Ephesus. I wonder what the beast of Ephesus was. People getting laxy-loosy and leaving their first love. Timothy, you want to combat that? Don't go on some rampage. Just preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the word. Because it is a great tool of combat against compromise. Not only that, but whenever we go later then in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter number 9, uh, we, we see that he tells them that if they don't correct their ways, uh, if they don't correct their ways in, in this story, but we'll get to Revelation 19 in just a moment, and the church of Pergamos, he tells them later, if you don't, here's what he's going to do. If you don't amend your ways, he says, I'll fight them with the sword of my mouth. In verse number 16, he tells that. If you don't repent, I'll come to you quickly. I'll fight you with the sword of my mouth. We read that same verbiage in Revelation 19, verses 13 through 15. There's one coming, seen as though he's leading the army. He's on a white horse. The Bible says his name is called the Word of God. His name is called the Word of God. And the Bible says he smites the nations with what? A sharp sword that goes out of his mouth. So there's a certain aspect of the Word of God here that's smiting the nations for their wrongdoing, which is this one edge of the sword, if you will, that's judgment of the Word of God. And so when he comes and approaches this church, the Word here, or this sharp two-edged sword, is in his hand. Amen. But among this church, now we have, there is a group of people that's holding fast to the name. Thank God for them. And there is another group of people that are holding fast to, the Bible says, he says, you have held fast to my faith. Thou hast not, in verse 13, thou hast not denied my faith. That's important. Everybody say my faith. Christ says you've not denied my faith. This is not a church's faith. This is not your pastor's faith. No, 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 no. He said this is my faith. This is not traditional faith. This is, this is not some made-up, materialized faith. My faith. You've not denied my faith. But then there is another group of people that is holding the doctrines of what the Scripture says, the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Back in the Old Testament, this is why this is one of the blessings of coming to Wednesday night Bible study and reading the book of Revelation. Remember, it's because you've got to go back to the Old Testament and understand some of the stuff that's being told in Revelation. One of the blessings is you learn more Scripture. And so, because when we talk about Balaam, if you don't know anything concerning the Old Testament about Balaam, you're saying Balaam. Balaam who? Balaam what? What's the big deal with Balaam? Well, you've got to go to the Old Testament Scripture to figure it out. You've got to go to the book of Numbers and realize that there was a time that the Moabites wanted to curse God's people. And so they got them a prophet by the name of Balaam. They wanted him to curse God's people. 
Every time he went to curse God's people, blessing just came out of his mouth. And he would bless God's people. Balaam was the one that had a conversation with his donkey. Angel of the Lord was there with a sword in his head, hand going to take care of Balaam. And the donkey's like, hey, don't you see what's going on right here? And he has a conversation with his donkey. Amen. So Balaam just ended up blessing God's people in the book of Numbers. But he didn't just leave things like that. He gave a stumbling block, even as it's denoted here in Scripture in verse 14. He kind of offered a stumbling block to Balak, the, the, the Moabite ruler, about what could be done. He said, I, I, I'm not being able to curse God's people, but let me tell you what you can do. Use your Moabite women to seduce the men of God's people and that's just what happened in the book of Numbers Numbers like 22 through 25 you can read of the stories of Balaam there and so the Moabite women went in through their seduction they got the, Moab, the, 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 the Israelite men to go to a festival of theirs that any festival that was pagan usually involved meat that was sacrificed to idols it involved some uh, fornication and immoral deeds and acts and through seduction they got those men involved in that and they corrupted them, the Israelites, by what? Even to the degree these Israelites started marrying Moabite women. Here's the Pergamos marriage thing, compromise. They went outside of their tribe and their family and their culture, meaning they went outside of being with their God and was endorsing and bringing in other gods and ways, doing things that they should not have been doing. So the basic plea then in the Old Testament then and even the church of Pergamos here and now is that if we can't get them to curse God's people, we'll just corrupt God's people. Uh-huh. Because it's a tall mountain to climb to get a curse on them. But if we can corrupt them from within. If we can just corrupt them from within. And that is exactly what happened. And then it said the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now look, in Ephesians, he said, good job Ephesians, because you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now here in Pergamos, he's speaking about the doctrine, deeds of them. Deeds of the Nicolaitans was refused, but deeds have turned into doctrine now of the Nicolaitans again we don't know a whole lot about their identity it wasn't real preserved for us what we do know is the word Nicolaitans itself means to conquer the people I think that goes hand in hand with what Balaam was doing with the corruption the doctrine of Balaam corruption marrying another of another kind bringing and endorsing things that should not belong with or in the church but kind of compromising with that what does that do that conquers that overcomes the people, if you will. Now, again, there's not a whole lot of information we have, but some scholars say this, that the Nicolaitans were followers of a man by the name of Nicholas who taught that the death of Jesus on Calvary had done away with the Ten Commandments. That's whenever Calvary came that they didn't have to worry about keeping any Ten Commandments anymore. And it was no longer necessary to keep them. Now, I know my Bible tells me that Jesus Christ didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law. In other words, they said that the, 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 this is according to some scholars that the Nicolaitans and the followers of Nicholas that they taught that it didn't matter what you did as long as you believed the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, if that is not something belched up through the ages and still yet in our day, don't worry about what you do. Just believe on the cross. That type of stigma and personality will conquer the people. Amen. It'll conquer the people. 
Amen. And so it was during this time that these people, the Israelites, these people, even Pergamos, must have been polluting themselves. He states very plainly to eat things sacrificed to idols in verse 14 and to commit fornication. Amen. But Christ said, look, so they're, they're polluting themselves, serving idols, they're, they're, they're eating meat, they're, they're fornicating, they're immoral acts. But Christ says, if you can be, get back on track, Here's what he tells him. If you can get back on track, he says, I'll give you hidden manna to eat. He said, you're eating polluted things right now. He said, but if you get back on track, I'm going to give you hidden manna to eat. Hidden manna, we speak of manna, Old Testament. See, here's again, you can go back to the Old Testament. That bread that fell from heaven for the Israelites that they took daily, amen, and twice on the sixth day they would take it. And they took a portion of that and put it in a pot and was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant that was hidden there for years, amen, but it was a testimony of the provision of, of God and he's telling these people you're going left and right eating polluted meat and polluted bread and and all these offerings he said but if you get your life back on track I'll provide for you you're not going to have to worry take no thought of what you're going to eat what you're going to wear or your provision I'll take care of you someone say amen, amen. I gotta run <sighs> I was all really doubtful if I was going to do this brother Zach and I thought about already putting a 2A on this okay well, let's continue on and he says not only that he said but I'll give you a, a white stone and in that stone the new name written in verse 17 which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it folks there is seven days from Sunday what that white stone could be I could give you different variations of what that white stone could be uh, in that day whenever they had trials and juries were voting they would cast a stone into an urn to vote uh, for either the acquittal or the condemnation of a prisoner. And uh, white stones was for acquittal, black stones were for condemnation. However, they had more white than they had black, he was acquitted. If they had black more than white, then he was condemned. And so if he's given us a white stone, he's acquitting us. He's relate, re erasing the wrongs and setting those things right. Um, there was also a white stone that was given between households whenever they wanted to show kindness and hospitality to one another and they struck friendships. I call it the, 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 the old time timeshare. That's what I call it. You know, people there in these timeshares and you switch houses you know, in different states, and you can go on vacation, and you kind of have this agreement. This is kind of like the old-time timeshare of a white stone. You had hospitality and kindness between one another. Each of you had part of a stone that didn't necessarily have an even break. It was jagged, so you knew that person just to be that person because your two stones fit together. They, you know, they have modern-day little hearts and things like that people trinking around with. You know, they just fit together, so you guys are friends, BFFs forever, and all this good stuff, all right? Well, this is the way it was. And so whenever you had that, you knew that there was kindness there. Each of you each had one part. And it's named for its little shape there, those dividing of those two pieces. But whenever they were placed together, man, they fit well. They welcome one another into their houses and fellowship. And that's the way it was. But there's another a historical note that, that, that is... Uh, ideally associated uh, with Pergamos and during that time they had all these Olympic or Greek games that were played and whenever a victor won a game whatever great game it was whether it was racing or all the different games that they had whenever he won it was not uncommon then for the victor the one who was victorious the winner in the game to be given as part of his prize a white stone 
and that white stone then was his ticket of admission into the festival that was held following all the games for all the victors. Uh, Not just anybody got into the festival. It was those that had a white stone because that indicated they were victorious. That indicated that they were a winner. And so we look at all these, and there's others besides that 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 could be indicated by this white stone. Nevertheless, from what I read from that, I like it already. It it could mean that I'm acquitted. Uh, It it, it could mean that I I got hospitality and I, I can have a residence where his residence is. It means that maybe perhaps I'm going to have a, a ticket that's going to get me a season pass to where the celebration is after all the games are done down here. And so I, I'll take any of them. <laughs> Amen. Give me that white stone. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. The fourth church, Thyatira, we call or I call, I won't say we, the tolerant church. The tolerant church. We just left the compromising church, went to the tolerant church. In Ephesus... There's a loss of first love. In Pergamos, there's a compromise with the world. But at Thyatira, there's a tolerance of sin. Now, whenever Jesus spoke to all these churches, he didn't commend any of them for their love except this church. He talks about their works, their patience, their endurance, all these other things. He talks about commends them for but this is the only church that he commends for, the taller church, mind you. He commends for their love. But let me tell you that the love that Thyatira had was an unbalanced love. Amen. The Bible says in Proverbs 3.12, this is the only scripture you really have to run to. I'm just kind of making references because we're just hitting the tops of the trees here. The Bible says, for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. He commended them for their love. They did have a love, but their love was unbalanced. Real love also has a facet to it of correction. And the church of Thyatira, they loved so much they never corrected. They tolerated instead. Let me tell you, there's times I tolerate too in my household. But somewhere along the way, where you tolerate only so much before correction happens. And there's certain things you don't tolerate at all. It's instant correction. But Thyatira was just closing its eyes. Oh, we love them. Well, I love them all too. But again, whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. So Ephesians, back to the first church, they were weak on love. They left it, their first love. And they're strong in doctrine, though. Man, they can't bear anybody that's evil. They hate the Nicolaitans, all this. But Thyatira, she's weak in doctrine, but strong in love. And either end of this spectrum, both of these extremes, God hates He hates a church that's strong on doctrine and has no love. And he hates a church that's strong in doctrine and has strong in love and has no doctrine. You got to have balance. Amen. And so in Thyatira, there's there's all kinds of, and it's probably not going to happen, all kinds of trade guilds in Thyatira. Uh, more than any other town in Asia. And these guilds, they were kind of like, you know, the pipe fitters, the carpentry unions, and everything of what you would think of of our day. All these different guilds, that what they called guilds at that day. But the interesting thing about these guilds is every guild or every union like this had a god. 
And so every God has to have worship and every God has to have uh, things done as far as meats offered to it and all these other things. And so that was the danger of this church in Thyatira because it was largely made up of these guilds. So if there was an Israelite or somebody that was going to have some type of work, then he was almost in a certain degree responsible, demanded, or felt obligated to be a part of this guild. But in doing so, they're going to be sacrificing to their God. So the concept is, well, because here's what they did. They would, they would have this God, and they would even do some worship to this God. And again, they would do like some little incense and stuff. But after you did that, then you were, you were open. You could still choose to serve whatever God, whatever other God you wanted to serve. Just take care of this little, mo- it's just kind of the, you, you know, the union uh, manual that this is just a part of who and what we are to be a part. So you just do this, no big deal, you can serve other gods as well. Now wouldn't it be very tolerant to say, well this is part of the work that I do, this is my means of living, and they say I can go on and serve Jehovah as long as I just do this one little act whenever we come together. No big deal. That's a tolerant church. Oh God. Because I have been around too many people over my time of life upon this earth that things have been lesson to be like well that's no big deal because it's just a, it's just it's kind of just like a, a crumb off the piece of pie and in comparison to the rest it's not much yet scripture says it just takes a little leaven to leaven the whole lump Take a large measure of leaven and put it in the lump and maybe, maybe, I don't know, I'm not a cook. Maybe it will happen quicker if you have more leaven. I don't know. If there's more yeast, will it rise quicker? Maybe not. I don't, bigger maybe. But if it's big or small, either way, it's going to impact the lump that it's put in. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. And so if it's a little or or liver, if it's much, Either way, it needs not be tolerated. Amen? Don't need tolerated. And so that's what was happening here. This is, was a big thing. And so, again, if we look at this, if we look at Thyatira here, you know, Balaam, he, he was this teacher, this spokesperson, this thinker, and he kind of just submitted the idea to Balak but man they're up on a mountain somewhere all this is taking place you know to destroy or to seduce the Israelites you know spoke from far away but whenever he begins to talk about Thyatira he says you all sufferest that prophetess Jezebel to be among the church Balaam is at a distance on a mountain with the, 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 the ruler of Moab with influence of a stumbling block and suggestion of seducing the Israelites Jezebel in the Old Testament time was not like that. She had her influence because she married into the family and her presence, she ruled from the king's bedroom. Amen. The spirit of Jezebel of every generation, folks. This is why this is just not uh, dispensational for a certain era of time. This 
spans all eras of times when we look at these churches. They are good for every age. The spirit of Jezebel is that spirit, and I might not have to say this, but people who don't know, is that spirit that is rebellious against authority. The spirit of Jezebel is the spirit that wants to seduce, to undermine, for what purpose? For the purpose of having control. Ahab was king, but let me tell you, she was the ruler. (laughs) He was king in name only. She ruled, and she also liked to rationalize sin. Amen. Look what the scripture, he told Thyatira. He said, you suffered her. You suffered Jezebel to teach and seduce your people. And so the, the problem in Thyatira was tolerance. The word suffers there in the Greek means to let be or permit or leave alone. You let be Jezebel. You permitted her. You, you didn't do anything about it. You didn't do anything about it. And so I know sometimes I get up here and I blow and I sweat and I look like I'm mad at the world and everybody's sitting in the church. But sometimes you just got to deal with things and preach about things so you don't succumb to being a tolerant church, a thyrotyra that's just batting an eye and nodding the head and saying, what's the big deal? Amen. Amen. And so, to contrast to the church, the first church, Ephesus, in its beginning, they couldn't bear false apostles. They hated the Nicolaitans, the church at Thyatira. They're tolerating a false prophetess, Jezebel. And there is something that we need to learn from this again. Look back at Ephesus. Man, they had good, good doctrine. Doctrine's right, but they're spiritually wrong. Now look at Thyatira. She's doctrinally wrong. Now listen to me. You can be doctrinally right and spiritually wrong, but you cannot be doctrinally wrong and still spiritually right. You hear me? You can have your doctrine right and have it with the wrong attitude, spiritually wrong, but you cannot have your doctrine wrong and still be right spiritually. Because that's tolerance. That's tolerance. Amen. He says to those that would overcome in this age, I'm watching here. Hallelujah, glory, amen, Jesus. We're doing okay. I set an hour on my clock tonight. Man, I used to, I used to sit through some long teachings. I'm not talking about Bishop either. Now, there's been a few of those that have been pretty long too. <laughs> Amen. Whenever you get done and you colored every page in your coloring book, it's been long, let me tell you right now. <laughs> when your crowns were long to begin with, you can't even sharpen them when you're done. It's, uh, he said to the overcomers, and here I am on the tangent. Overcomers. To the overcomers, he says, he says, I'm gonna give you, he said, I'm gonna give you the morning star. He spoke of himself later in the book of Revelations as the morning star. That morning star, they say it's Venus, I don't know. But nevertheless, that morning star is the star that does not appear until right before dawn. It appears at the darkest hour of the night. And then comes the morning star. And what that is saying is this. This is the darkest part of the night, but morning's just right behind me. He says, Tara, Tara, 
do not tolerate. Don't, don't mix, don't mail, don't do any of that. Because if you get this thing right, he said, I'm going to give you the morning star. I know it's been a real, real dark time. He said, but morning is just on the brink of coming. This thing is just about over. It's going to be wrapped up. It's going to be all tucked away. The darkest hour. I'm thinking here what I'm supposed to do. I still, you realize where we're at, don't you? You've been falling along. I still got, I still got three churches left. How's everybody doing? Well, glory. Let me look at my wife. Just for comfort. Would you be all right if we just did it? Huh? Anybody got school tomorrow? People got to work, though, don't they? I know it, don't we all? Amen. <laughs> Tomorrow's the last day. Man, there's a word of confidence. I don't need nothing else. You say sick them and I'm sick of them right now. The book, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Listen, I, and some of my comments on some of these other churches may not be as long as some others. <clears throat> the key word there is may. Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. Sardis, everybody say the dead church. The dead church. The church in Sardis was quite opposite to the church in Smyrna Smyrna it seemed like was being put to death yet lived Sardis was dead but it needed to come to life alright Sardis and Sardis didn't even seem to suffer any persecution we don't see any record in this occurrence of them talking about them being persecuted Sardis wasn't being persecuted like Smyrna just overly was persecuted and one of the reasons why is why would Satan bother to persecute a dead church Amen. What trouble do you got with a dead church? So we don't see no per se persecution because why persecute something that's not giving you any trouble to begin with? They're dead. As a matter of fact, the city itself, Sardis had fell prey a couple times in the natural sense. It fell prey to their enemies because they failed to keep continual watch at their post. They had sentinels throughout the city that kept watch from people from just breaking in into their cities. And, but because they didn't keep people at their posts and they failed to keep, to keep watch, there were a couple times that their city was overtaken by the enemy because of not having anybody there watching over it. And so the spirit of the city really got into the church. Uh-huh. They had failed to keep watch in a natural sense, and that spirit made its way into the church at Sardis. But they started to fail to keep watch in a spiritual sense. As a matter of fact, when you read this letter, there is a key theme or word to them. Be watchful. Watch is, is Christ imploring them again and again. And I like what uh, Dr. Vance uh, Havner said. He said, frequently we're reminded that spiritual ministries go through four stages. He says it goes through the stage of a man, a movement, a machine, and then a monument. He said Sardis was at the monument stage, but there was still hope. In other words, you just, what do you do when you have monuments? You memorialize something of the past. 
That was Sardis. She wasn't alive. She wasn't active. She wasn't going forward. She was just memorializing the things of the past. Remember, I think it was the last week or whatever it was. Or yeah, we talked about the candlestick and the light. And we talk about Matthew chapter number five, the light of a world. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. And we talked about this before. A bushel is nothing more but a, a measurement of a past harvest. You don't take your light and put it and just memorialize what you did in your past. We talked about Noah before, man. He gets done. The biggest thing in his life is building the ark. All the time that was consumed in that, it's all said and done. And what's he got left to do? The only thing he does is plant a vineyard in the rest of his life. You don't see no great action. Nothing great going forward. Why? Because he was so caught up in what he had done in his past, he wasn't active for his present or future. Amen. He was just memorializing the things of the past. And so that was what was happening uh, with this particular church. But he said, he said unto them, notice what he said unto them, <clears throat> as him that would overcome in Sardis. He said, basically, if you're going to overcome, he said, you're going to be clothed in white raiment. He says, and look, and I will, I will not blot out your name out of the book of life. I'm not going to blot your name out of the book of life. In ancient times, on a natural sense, in ancient times, cities kept a register of their citizens. And if one of the citizens proved guilty of treachery or disloyalty or anything that would bring shame upon the city, they were subjected to public dishonor by blotting their name from the city register. Now, normally, their name would only be taken from the city register if they died. But if they did something disloyal or dishonest or something, they would take their name from the register. They were no more regarded to be as a registered city or citizen, rather, of that city. And so they had a lot of honor given to them. If they did something honorable, sometimes they would have their name that's in the register gold-plated or with gold embroidery around them. Christ is saying, hey, he says, if you turn this thing around and you get out of your grave and you become alive again, he said, I will not blot your name out of the book of life they could identify with that he says you're going to be deemed as alive not dead you're going to be deemed as alive and he says so i'm going to do that for you let's go on revelations 3 verse number 7 through 13 the church of philadelphia the church of opportunity and promise now whenever christ comes to this church he comes in as he that is holy he that is true and he that has the key of david he that can open and no man shuts that shuts and no man can open and I think that's a great approach to them because he turns around and then tells them that he says I've set before you Philadelphia an open door now that means a lot to me if he's already come to me as the one with the key that said he shuts and no man opens and he opens and no man shuts Whenever he comes to me like that and then tells me he's given me an open door I know right at that moment nobody can shut that I know at that moment, nobody can close that. And notice what he says, the reason why there is an open door. He basically tells them the reason why you have this open door, it is the result of you keeping, or if you will, guarding my word and not denying my name. He says on these two grounds, he says the reason why this open door has come to you. And those are two grounds that the church is greatly attacked and sometimes faltered. And that's with his name and with guarding his word. Because the idea today, scandalous idea, false idea that meanders around the church world is this. If you want opportunity, you better dilute his message. 
If you really want to go somewhere, you really want to be a church in this day and age, just dilute his message and don't worry about his name. Wrong, 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 wrong. Christ said, he said, there's going to be a door of opportunity open and no man will be able to shut it. Why? Because you held true to my word and you held true to my name. So if you're hearing those type of voices concerning the church today, right here, they're wrong. You don't dilute this message. You keep the message true, genuine, and intact. And by all means, uphold his name. Amen. Potus name, he's going to take care of it. But he comes to them. He says, he says, you, you are of little strength. That's okay. This church isn't built on our strength anyway. He told him in the epistles, he said, my strength is made perfect through your weakness. He says, so whenever this thing gets to where it needs to be, the glory will land where it ought to land, not on those that make up the church but the one that holds the, 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 the pastors, the angels of the churches and in the midst of the church, Christ Jesus, he will get the glory. Now, this church of Philadelphia, uh, brotherly love, nothing is said against them. Nothing is said against them, just like Smyrna. Nothing is said against them. They kept his word, and since they kept his word, he lets them know, he says, I'm going to keep you. Look what he says. In Sardis, he said, or not Sardis, but Philadelphia. He says, I'm going to keep you. Let me find the particular scripture, verse number 10 of Revelation 3. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. You kept my word, I'm going to keep you. Now, without going through a real long, long, long thing, the hour of temptation, it's speaking of a definite period of time, hour of temptation, the world, those that are left in the world, shall face, amen, them that dwell in the earth. That is an allusion to the tribulation. As a, that is an allusion to the great tribulation. Now, John, interestingly, the Lord, spoken to by the Lord, notice the wording. He says, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. The Greek words there are through ek, T-H-R-E-W space E-K. They mean keep out or keep from. Now there are other ways that John could have stated this with the same basic words. And they would have meant that he would have to keep them in, keep in. Meaning like they would go to the tribulation, he would just keep them safeguarded in it. But that's not the word he chose. He said he could have, there's another word that denoted that he could kept them through. Again, denoting that they would go through it. To take out of. He could have used that, or to save out of, or to take from, meaning that they would go through it, but somewhere along the way he would deliver them. But that's not the words that he chose or used. He used the words to keep out or keep from. And what we are a large proponent of, meaning then that the rapture of the church will take place before the tribulation ever begins. He said he'll keep them from the hour of temptation. Amen. Keep them out of. And then he says, I come quickly. Now, we say, well, well, I don't know what your definition of quick, but let me tell you, a few years have passed from then until now. But the word quickly is not just meaning soon. It means suddenly, unexpectedly, or without announcement. That when Christ comes, it's going to be suddenly. When Christ comes, it'll be unexpectedly. Without announcement. 
except for a trump, but that's all going to happen so quick. Amen. And so he does, he will come quickly. And he says, this is what I'm going to do for y'all. He says, whoever overcomes, I'm going to make him a pillar. He will no longer go out, and the name of God will be written on them. Now, the city of Philadelphia, it was subjected to a lot of earthquakes. It's just historically true that they were subjected to a lot of earthquakes. And as it would be, uh, whenever there are earthquakes and buildings suffer uh, from it and they fall away, but many times the only things that were left standing were the pillars of the structures this is something that they could relate to he says Christ says that he's going to make us the pillars not only that because of these earthquakes a lot of times people with fear did not live within the town they lived outside of the town they were always leaving and coming back he told them he said whoever overcomes makes it through all this he says you're going to go out no more He's giving them a promise. They're, they're living with fear and trepidation. So you're, gonna, you're not going to go out anymore. And also in the city of Philadelphia, whenever a man had served the state well and died, he would be honored by having, this is what they would do, they would inscribe his name on a pillar in the house of the God of grapes, as it were, amen, that the city was known for. But Christ says, if you'll overcome, if you'll make it through, he says, I'll make you a pillar. It's not going to be in the God of grapes. It's going to be in the temple of my God. It's going to be right there. And as it was then, so it is now. You know, people sign their names to a paper. What's that saying? I'm claiming ownership over this house, ownership over this car. You put your name to something, you're claiming ownership for it. And as it is now, so it was then. He says, I'm going to put my name on you. What's that saying? He's saying that says, I own you that you are mine, you're my possession. I count you as my own. Revelation 3, verse 14, and I won't stay here long. I know, folks, I went long, and I appreciate this is over you, but just, just think of it this way. What we did right now in the process of over an hour would have otherwise taken seven weeks, okay? We're even, amen, hallelujah. The name Laodicea means the rule of the people, the rule of the people. And that explains Laodicea to a T, the rule, not of God, but of the people. Every other church, you look at the letter that's written to every other church that is addressed, and it's to the angel of the city of Ephesus or to the angel in the city of Smyrna. It's of the city or in the city. But whenever it comes to this church, look how it is postured. It's unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, the people. Christ, out of all the churches, this is the only one this happens, of all the churches, Christ didn't say anything good about him. I tell you what, I wouldn't want to be on Christ's blacklist. He did not say anything good about them. The progression of their thoughts is this. We are rich, we're increased with goods, and have need of nothing. Again, the spirit of the city had entered the church because at one particular time, Laodicea is not very far from Philadelphia. As a matter of fact, if you start with Ephesus that was kind of on the bank of, of, uh, of a body of water on the, the, the west bank of Asia, they, they just kind of go in a counterclockwise way. So these letters just kind of follow that path in the way in which they would be delivered. And so Laodicea was close to Philadelphia, and so they experienced earthquakes as well. And they had an earthquake that just totally devastated their city, but they did not ask for any assistance from the Roman government or from the governments that would be. They rebuilt their own city out of their own resources. They had the mentality, we don't need your help. We don't need anything. 
and so we're, we're rich we're, we're, we're increased with goods we have need of nothing but Christ's thought pattern about them was this you're wretched you're miserable you're poor you're blind you're naked now there's one thing very important and that we got to come to terms with that what Christ sees concerning us is a whole lot more important about how we see ourselves and more true than how we see ourselves. remember whenever he comes approaching them he's approaching them as the faithful and true witness I'm not blowing smoke here I'm telling you as it is he's telling them I'm the faithful and true witness you're going to believe anything believe what I say but this is the church that's self-sufficient they're self-sufficient in the things of this life but when it concerns the things of God they are really in poverty he says you're poor he says here's what you need to do he says you need to buy you gold tried in the fire you need to you need to buy yourself some gold where's the scripture that is tried in the fire I'm trying to find it folks I'm trying to find it Does anybody help me out there it is, verse 18. Buy you gold tried in the fire. They can be rich. He says, buy yourself some white raiment. Buy yourself, if you will, some ointment for your eyes and anoint your eyes with eye slab. Buy all these things. Well, Christ, you're saying that we're poor. You're telling us to buy us. Well, in that day as it was in many days, a good exchange when the souls, many times in these days, the souls of men were used as currency. When you were so-called poor, and he called them poor in a spiritual sense, the souls of men were used as currency. Christ, if you're calling us poor, how are we going to buy this? I tell you what I'll give you. in ex- I'll give you the gold tried as fire, and I'll give you the white raiment, and I'll give you the ice slab, and I want you to buy it. But yeah, you're spiritually poor. How are you going to do this? I tell you the exchange. You give your soul to me, and I'll, give, I'll clothe you with the white raiment. I'll make sure your eyes are anointed with the salve and I'll make sure that you have gold that's tried by the fire and that's not gold with impurity that's gold, gold that's been through the fire has got the impurities, the dross taken away there'll be an exchange for you so, and I'm, I'm closing, stand with me please I know I'm sorry, really this will be only probably the fifth time that I'll do this in this whole thing <laughs> he tells them then and, and, and I want to close with this verse number 19 he says to them and there's the story with him knocking on the door that I've already made mention of here and there verse 19 though he tells them look again there here is the picture of love that that we see that should be seen that should be endorsed as many as I love he says I rebuke and chasten be zealous therefore and repent so God's rebuke God's discipline flows from his love for the churches so that's what I receive. I know sometimes I go, you know, personally, as an individual, we're supposed to take all this individually. And if you've ever went to a place of prayer and you felt like God was whooping you, ever felt like you received a chastisement from the Lord, and again, uh, you know, as kids, as kids, whenever mom and did, dad did that, we told them, I know how, because I've been there now with my kids, you know, they tell you you're mean. You don't like me. And so they don't love you anymore. They tell you all this hosh posh you know listen to me very closely I'm ending with a point here so they're telling me you know you're mean you don't love me I mean they say everything under the sun you know and I just take it with a grain of salt you know why I do because them saying things like that just has proven their place of immaturity 
And whenever we can't take correction from God like we really make take correction from God, it just shows at that particular point our level of immaturity with Him. So as we grow older, we begin to understand the, the why and what's connected to all of that, that discipline. All of that is their love flowing through that. Amen. Thank you for hanging with us. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.